Well, you can keep your Bibles open right there to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. We are going to focus in today on the story right after the one we just read. But we're also going to be spending a lot of time today in the book of Jeremiah. Because on the one hand, we're definitely getting close to Christmas now. It is two weeks away from today. And the plan for preaching here is for me to preach today, next Sunday, and Christmas morning. So I want to start today to turn our attention to Christmas. But on the other hand, our main sermon series the last four or five months has been on the book of Jeremiah. And so I thought I had this idea that as we begin to focus more in on the Christmas story, I thought it would be good to start with whatever Jeremiah has to say about Christmas. And this leads to a trivia question, perhaps. What exactly does Jeremiah have to say about Christmas? Well, as it turns out, there is really only one part of the Christmas story that is directly connected to the book of Jeremiah. And that's where we're going to start today. That is the story that is told in the middle of Matthew chapter 2. But as it turns out, this story is also, without a doubt, the hardest story to talk about in the entire Christmas story. Now, before we look at the story together, I just want to say a few things about the next three sermons so you can know in advance where we're going. Over the the next three weeks, my hope is to work through three passages from Matthew's gospel about the Christmas story, but we'll be going in reverse order, starting today in the middle of Matthew 2, and then next week going back to the story that was just read, the story of the wise men or the magi, and then on Christmas morning, going back to the birth story in Matthew chapter 1. But there are two other ways you could think about these three sermons. First, these three sermons will progress from harder to understand to much easier to understand. Today's text is by far the most challenging of the three. The next week, With the wise men, it'll get a lot easier. And then Christmas morning, the birth of Jesus. It'll be really, really simple, okay? Second, thinking of how these progress, okay? These sermons will also progress from darkest to brightest or from saddest to happiest. We will begin with the darkest and saddest part of the Christmas story today. And then we'll end on Christmas morning with the brightest and happiest story of Christmas, the birth of Emmanuel. So let's begin by reading the story from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, that we just read from verses 1 through 12. And in that story, we're introduced to a guy named Herod. That Herod was Herod the Great, but in spite of the name, he was a bad man. He reigned over Judea, like Israel, as king for a long time. 33 years, he was kind of under the Romans. This Herod was also a very paranoid man. He was known for dealing mercilessly with anyone he thought was a threat to his reign. For example, of the 10 wives that Herod had during his life, he had a favorite wife named Miriam. And do you know what he did to her? He killed her. He also killed two of their sons that they had together, 
And then very shortly before he died, he had another of his own sons killed just to keep him from the throne. But in the Bible, what this Herod is best known for is this story. Herod was an old man when he did this. In fact, he would be dead within a year of this act of terror. You can probably remember from the scripture reading how the wise men came to Herod in Jerusalem and asked, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. Herod gets some quick help from some biblical scholars that he knows and tells the wise men, you should look over in Bethlehem, which was only about six miles away from Jerusalem. (laughs) But Herod told them that once you find him, let me know. I would like to come and worship him too. Probably within a day, they were there. It was so close to go down to Bethlehem. But while they were there, they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they left a different way. Now our story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, this is Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now that's the main story for today, but I want to read to the end of the chapter. So verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is the darkest or the saddest part of the story of Christmas. It's the story of how Herod slaughtered the innocent sons of Bethlehem, but how Joseph fled to Egypt with Mary and Jesus to save the life of the newborn king. Now, a little later this morning, we're going to go back and look at the book of Jeremiah, where that one text is from. But I want to begin with just a couple thoughts on this story itself, just as we read it. So first, you notice that in verse 13, the story starts with an angel 
delivering an urgent message from God to Joseph to flee to Egypt. God directly intervenes to save them. Second, you can tell in verse 14 that Joseph obeys immediately. The text says he rose and took the child and his mother by night. So to, to take off for Egypt in the middle of the night, I mean, and part of this might be that he knows Herod is not far away. I mean, they are very close to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so to take off for Egypt in the middle of the night is a bold and fairly dangerous thing to do, but Joseph does it immediately because he truly believes the words of that messenger from the Lord. And then third, you think about Herod, you notice that Herod, in his rage, commits an act of horrible, inexcusable injustice. Herod sends out his soldiers from Jerusalem to go over to the local village and to find and to kill all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem that were two years old or under. Now, on the one hand, we don't want to exaggerate <coughs> the scope of this. Given the size of Bethlehem, which is a very small village and the areas around it, most scholars believe we're probably talking about something like 20 baby boys. So on the one hand, this was not an order to kill all the boys in all of Israel. On the other hand, for this region and for those families in particular, this was a night of terror with no warning and for no reason known to them. Herod's henchmen arrive and slaughter their sons. Okay, that is the story. I imagine as we listen to the sad story, we're also reminded of other stories because there's things in this story that sound like a lot of other stories in the Bible. It's, in fact, there's so many of these kind of connections that it's hard to note all of them. But here are a few that maybe you, maybe you heard or you'll think about it as if I say it. So first, when, when you hear of how God takes a man named Joseph down to Egypt in order to save his family, it's hard not to think of the Joseph story in Genesis. Or when you hear that Jesus himself spends time in Egypt and then is called out of Egypt, it's hard not to see a connection between Jesus and Israel. That is actually the point of the one quote from Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son, which in Hosea was originally about calling Israel out of Egypt. Third, when you hear that a decree went out from the king to kill all the baby boys, it's hard not to remember what happened in the days of Moses, where Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, <coughs> sought repeatedly to kill all the baby boys of the Hebrews. We might also remember in that story how God spared the life of one of the baby boys, Moses, the very one 
that God selected to rescue his people. And there are many more possible connections that maybe you think of when you hear these stories. But for our purposes right now, I just want to ask, <clears throat> what do you think we're supposed to do with this story? We don't like this story. This is not a popular Christmas story. Okay, I've been thinking about this a lot. Okay, and there are no easy answers about what to do with this story. Uh, one of the things that's become clear to me <clears throat> is that the story leaves us with a lot of really hard questions, troubling questions. How can terrible things like this happen? How can there be such evil in this world? And from a Christian point of view, we might even want to ask, how can God allow things like this to happen? And here you have a story about the little boys of Bethlehem being slaughtered by a brutal king without cause, without mercy, without warning. And that leads many to ask, how can God allow things like that to happen? I mean, how can God, in this text, allow mothers and fathers to experience loss like that? And I'm trying to phrase the questions in respectful but honest ways, right? ways that actually express what we might feel in our hearts as we read stories like this. And these are, of course, the same kinds of questions that we have to deal with <coughs> when we think about other horrible injustices that have happened throughout history as well. And the truth is there are no easy answers to these questions. And how do you work through these kinds of questions? How might you try to comfort yourself or someone else in the face of injustice or tragic loss? For right now, I want to let those questions kind of sit on the side for a while. I do plan to come back to them later. But I want to ask another question about this, this text, and that is the question of how exactly this story of the slaughter of the children connects to the book of Jeremiah. Okay? After all, there, there's this one specific text that connects this story specifically to Jeremiah. Did you see it? It's, it's verses 17 and 18. In Matthew 2, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That is the one thing from Jeremiah that shows up in the Christmas story. But what does it mean? What was Jeremiah talking about? And what's going on specifically with Rachel? in that text, okay? Now, to try to help us with this, I want to start by actually going back before Jeremiah to the original Rachel story. It's in the book of Genesis. It can be found in Genesis 29 to 35, okay? So that's where you can read about Rachel on your own. Do you remember the story of Rachel, the original one? What happens to her? What was she like? What was her life like? Okay, I just want to highlight a, a couple things from the Rachel story. Okay, first thing, kind of review 
Okay, so we can't look at all these texts. Okay, Rachel was the favorite wife of whom? Jacob, okay? Now, it is pretty much always a bad sign if a man has a favorite wife, okay? okay? Married men, this is not a compliment to give to your wife. Okay? This is a bad sign in, this, in the Jacob story too. You might remember that Jacob was actually tricked by Rachel's dad into marrying her sister Leah first. Now, Jacob did not care for that. Uh, Rachel, of course, in that text, is noted as being very beautiful. Leah, not so much. Jacob loved Rachel, wanted Rachel. Leah, not so much. And this led, of course, to all kinds of trouble in the family. <clears throat> the second thing about the Rachel story is that God's response to that was that God blessed Leah with eventually six sons while Rachel struggled with infertility. And on Rachel's part, this led to great sorrow, weeping, envy, and frustration. Perhaps you remember, or maybe you don't even recognize this, Rachel's very first words in the Bible. She tells Jacob, give me children or I will die. The Rachel story, in fact, is not a very happy story. We have lots of Rachels in our church. It's great. The Rachel story itself in Genesis is not very happy. But eventually, after a lot of sorrow and a lot of not great things in that family, God remembered Rachel. God listened to her cries and opened her womb. And so Rachel gives birth to Joseph, the one who became Jacob's favorite son, which is also not a great thing to have in the family. Okay. Okay, but then, just fast forwarding, fourth thing, Rachel dies sometime later as she's giving birth to a second son named Benjamin. Well, we know him as Benjamin, but that was not the name she gave him. Rachel, with her dying words, actually named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob, however, renamed him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And then the last thing from the Rachel story is that Rachel is buried between Bethel in the north and a small town called Bethlehem in the south. She's buried very close to Bethlehem. So in essence, Rachel dies weeping, not far from the town of Bethlehem. And then she is buried in a place that you come to find out is very near a place called Ramah. Okay? And as it turns out, her tomb becomes a very well-known site in Israel, not far from Bethlehem, not far from a place called Rama. Okay, that is the gist of the original Rachel story. Now, I want to fast forward from that story about a thousand years, over a thousand actually. 
to the time of the prophet Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, I want to go to two places. First, I want to look at one verse from Jeremiah chapter 40. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 40. This is not even the main point of this verse. But I want you to see the name of one particular location. Okay, look at Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. <clears throat> this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Now, without going into detail here, okay, let me remind you, Jeremiah spent most of his ministry warning the people that one day Babylon's going to come and take us into exile. By that verse, Jeremiah 40, verse 1, those warnings have become reality. It's actually happening. And one thing you might remember from previous sermons about Jeremiah is that Babylon actually decided to release Jeremiah and let him go wherever he wanted to go. And this verse tells us about that. But what I wanted to see is the name of the place where Jeremiah was let go. Did you see it? He was let go in a place called Ramah. Okay, now, if you think carefully about this and what that verse said, what happened is that Jeremiah and all the other captives were forced to march right past this place called Ramah on their way to captivity. Jeremiah happened to be let go, but nobody else was. But the point I want to make is that this suggests that all of the captives were marched right past Rachel's tomb on their way to Babylon. Okay, can you follow that? Now, I want to go back to the text I read earlier, Jeremiah chapter 31. And for the sake of time, I'll just highlight a couple things. I hope you can kind of remember some of what was in the text. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 31. Did you notice when I read it that almost everything in Jeremiah 31 is very happy news? Jeremiah has a lot of sad news. Jeremiah 31 is almost entirely happy stuff. I want you to feel the happiness, okay? Verse 1 of Jeremiah 31. It's a couple verses. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel. They will be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you. You will be built, O virgin Israel. Okay, that is really good news. That is happy stuff, right? It's a message about what God will do on the other side of all this judgment of exile. There is coming a day okay, after God's judgment falls that God will do something wonderful and good. Judgment will not be God's final word. This is what all of this chapter is about. Okay, so, so second thing to notice. Everything in Jeremiah 31 is very happy 
except for one verse. Did you notice that when we read it? Do you have any idea which verse it is that is really, really sad? It's Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Look at it. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. <clears throat> okay, though Rachel has been gone for well over 1,000 years by now, the memory of her sorrow and of her tears still lives on. Now, what's going on here? We're not told a whole lot. So what's the story with Rachel weeping? To start with, you have to remember that Israel, as in the north, is already long gone by this point. The sons of Israel are no more. But now, in Jeremiah's day, what's also happening? The remaining sons of Israel, the people of Judah, are now in chains too, and they are being marched out of Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. But on the way, where do they go first? They go to Ramah. They go right by the tomb of Rachel, one of the mothers of Israel's sons, the mom who died with tears on her face and sorrow in her heart. And what's the picture in Jeremiah 31? Rachel is still weeping. But not just for what happened in her own day. In this picture, she's crying because all of Israel's sons are being taken away. And she refuses to be comforted. Why? Because they are no more. Okay? So what, so what does that mean in the text? It means before the happy days of Jeremiah 31 arrive, there will first be some really, really sad days, a time of great weeping. Now, for the final point from this text, Jeremiah 31, I want to look at the next two verses. Listen to what God says to Rachel in the text, verse 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, this is directly to Rachel in the text, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They will come back from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will come back into their own country. And so even here in Jeremiah 31, you notice Rachel's weeping is not the final word of the story. In this picture, it's like God is speaking directly to Rachel, who has been, as it were, weeping for a thousand years. And God tells her, weep no more. The exile of your sons is not the end of the story. There's hope. They'll come back again. No, I want to go back to the story of Matthew. What do we find in the Gospel of Matthew? <clears throat> Try to bring this together. Okay, what we find is that the time 
for God to fulfill his promises has come. But in the story we've been thinking about, what do we also see? Prior to the great joy, there would be another time of great sorrow and weeping for Rachel. When God sent his son from heaven to rescue his people, Herod sent out his soldiers to slaughter the son. But since Herod didn't know exactly who he was or where he was, he ordered the murder of all the baby boys of Bethlehem. And Matthew tells us that this incredibly sad story did what? It fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel still weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But as you read through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, what we find is good news that God would do something this time that would lead finally to the end of Rachel's tears. This time, God would do something through his own son to bring about the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 where all of God's people would finally be freed from all of their sins and where all of Rachel's tears would finally be dried up. Now, <clears throat> I don't imagine that I've answered every question we might have about this text. I'm not sure I've answered all my questions about this text. But I hope you've seen enough to just start thinking <clears throat> about Jeremiah and the story of Christmas. This story is without a doubt the saddest part of the Christmas story. What are we supposed to do with it? We think hard about a hard story. What are we supposed to do? I want to highlight two C's, okay? Two things. Christmas, I want to think about Christmas, and comfort. Okay. First, one of my hopes today is that we think more clearly about Christmas. Okay, I do not like this story that we've been in in Matthew 2. I find it particularly troubling and sad. But I don't want to ignore this story because it is part of the authentic Christmas story. The story of Christmas is one of great joy. In future sermons, we will look at more of that. Okay? But it is not a Hallmark movie. It is not a story where there are no bad guys or where all the bad guys turn into good guys. The story of Christmas is a real story. And this part of that story shows us stuff that none of the other parts do. Things I hope we won't forget. I mean, just thinking through some of this. One thing, <clears throat> the story shows us the, the faithfulness of Jesus' dad, Joseph, to obey God's voice immediately to save his family. Seems Joseph is often forgotten in our like tellings of the Christmas story, but not in this story. But the story also shows us, in a very disturbing way, the evil of this world 
the abuse of power. Herod wants nothing more than to protect himself, so he will go to any length to keep his power, even if it means the slaughter of the children. But the story today also shows us in a heightened way what the Son of God left behind to become one of us. This is a story of how the Son of God left behind heaven's peace to come into a hostile and brutal world where at least some people wanted nothing more than to kill him, even as a baby. Jesus came here into enemy territory on a mission to save the captives that he loved. That's what Christmas is all about, and I hope this story helps us think more clearly about the Christmas story. But my other desire today is to help us think more deeply about comfort. What is it that can truly comfort us or anyone when we deal with injustice or inexplicable loss? What is it that can comfort someone in the face of those kinds of things? The story we looked at today pushes us to search for answers to those questions, even though we have to admit there are no easy answers to this. I mean, think, for example, of the moms and dads of the boys of Bethlehem. I don't know that many of them, if any of them, ever knew exactly why the things happened that happened to them. But even if they did, either way, what could comfort them? And by extension, we could ask, what can comfort anyone in the face of horrific injustice or tragic loss that you cannot explain? As Christians, I think we can point to at least three things. One, from a Christian point of view, we do know that justice is coming. Herod, for example, got his reward. And God will bring down justice on the heads of all those who do such evil things. Now, I think there is a measure of comfort that we get from that. But I think we need to be honest. That just knowing that God will judge doesn't resolve all the angst we feel in our hearts about the sad things that happen, the unjust things that happen. It doesn't on its own provide the comfort that we need, though it provides some comfort. But is there anything else that provides even better comfort? I think there is, even for those who've suffered the loss of a child. Second thing, as Christians, is that we know that our God knows what it's like to lose a beloved son. Our God is not a God 
who is isolated from our pain. Our God is not like the Buddhas you see sitting there, completely serene and calm and separate from all pain. Our God is a God who knows what it's like to see a beloved son killed. But in this case, God the Father actually sent his son to die. Why? It was for us. So that we, through him, could become God's own sons and daughters and have a really good father. I'm not suggesting that this means we will feel no pain or anguish from injustice or loss. <clears throat> but I am saying there is real comfort for Christians in being able to call out to a father who knows our pain and who truly loves us in our sorrows. But in the Christian faith, there's also comfort in this. There's comfort in knowing as your own savior, someone who knows what it's like to die an unjust death. In our story today, this is one of the things I've struggled with. In our story today, there is a different outcome for Jesus than for the other boys of Bethlehem. Jesus is spared miraculously while the others are killed unjustly. What happens to them is very different in the story. <clears throat> How do we work through that? I think when we think of the story of Jesus, we realize this isn't the end of Jesus' story. In fact, by the end of his story, Jesus would identify with the slaughtered sons of Bethlehem. Before long, Herod's own son would join with Pilate and with the Jewish religious leaders to slaughter one more of Bethlehem's sons. Jesus would die a violent, brutal, unjust death too. And I'm not suggesting that this means that we feel no pain or anguish from injustice or tragic loss, but I am saying there's real comfort in that, in having a savior who knows what it's like to be treated shamefully and even to be killed unjustly. Because on that day of injustice, the day he bore his cross, there would again be weeping and sorrow, even from Jesus' own mother who watched him die. But the best news of all is that his death was not the end of his story. This son from Bethlehem was raised from the dead and his resurrection is what gives hope and final resolution to all who look to him. In fact, it's ultimately his death and resurrection that will lead one day to the final wiping away of all of Rachel's tears and all of our tears too. In the Christian faith, there is an answer, though it's not like it's easy, but there's hope in Christianity that you will never find 
anywhere else for your suffering. Because the father knows what it's like to see his son treated unjustly and your savior knows what it's like to be treated shamefully and even to be killed unjustly. And you can take your questions and your unresolved angst in your heart and you can take it to him and know he's not separate from your pain. He knows it and he can love you in it and through it. This is what gives us comfort from even the saddest part of the Christmas story. Let's pray. Father, this has been a hard story to think about. But yet I pray that you will use it to open our eyes to the real joys and sorrows of the Christmas story. And I hope, Lord, and I pray that you will help us with our struggles internally to find comfort that only you can provide for us. Knowing that you know our pains and you care for us. And we thank you for Jesus, his death and his resurrection, which is the only hope we really have that one day all the tears will be dried up. Give us hope and patience as we wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.